1: real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week individual results may vary
2: you're listening to the contest and me a podcast from the euro trip
3: hello 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 how are you doing i hope you are well because welcome along to episode three of the contest and me for 2023. I'm a poet and I don't even know it. I am Rob. Hello. I am one half of the Eurotrip podcast team. We are here every single Wednesday to bring you the very best from the world of the Eurovision Song Contest. Regular listeners, you will know that I'm usually joined by a short little fella called James Rowe. He is my co-host on this podcast. However, he's not here this week. I think you'll forgive him because James is on his first holiday For four years I know, the little fella's not been on holiday Since 2019 So I think we can forgive him this week, can't we? He is on a little cruise around Europe And he's going to a lot of countries In a very short amount of time He just spent his birthday in San Marino You may have seen that on social media So we'll be asking him all about that And where else he's been When he hopefully returns For the podcast next week However, the contest and me Waits for no one It doesn't wait for anyone It is back again for another week So you've got me, Rob, with you Solo this week But fear not Because I will be bringing you A conversation with a very well-known personality From the world of the Eurovision Song Contest They have a very familiar voice And maybe if you're watching the BBC's TV coverage Over the course of 2023 At least their news coverage of the contest A very familiar face as well he is Daniel Rosny. He is the BBC's Eurovision reporter. And we'll be hearing how he fell in love with the contest all the way through to what he got up to in 2023. So that's still to come on today's episode of The Contest in Me. So, hello then. I hope you are doing all right. It is Rob with you, solo, for The Contest in Me this week. But as I've already said, not solo for long, because it won't be long until I bring you my conversation with Daniel Rosny, the BBC's Eurovision reporter here on the contest and me this week. He joins us, we go through all of our favourite questions we like to ask as part of the contest and me, and we've got some fantastic stories on the way, including, by the way, how Daniel ended up in bed with a Eurovision winner. Yeah, the pause was deliberate. We'll get to that a little bit later on. But thank you to every one of you who has been in touch saying how much you have loved the series so far. It's been brilliant to get your messages. Of course, at the start of the series this year, we have done something a little bit different. So if you've caught our previous two episodes, rather than us be joined by a well-known personality from the world of Eurovision, as usual, and as we will be for the rest of the series this year, I interviewed James... And then last week, James interviewed me. We thought it was a really good way of you listening, getting to know a little bit more about our history with the Eurovision Song Contest. Also, for any new listeners who might be joining us. Hello, by the way, if you're a new listener. Thanks for coming along for the ride. Uh, yeah, for any new listeners, we thought, you know what, it'd be good if they found out a little bit more about us. And you've got in touch in your droves with a really lovely reaction. So thank you so much for listening. Also, some really interesting comments in uh, some of the things me and James have been saying. I mean, just last week, James suggested, for example, why don't we move the semi-finals to a Monday and a Wednesday to allow for a rest day on the Thursday? And I said, why don't the UK send rock music or folk music for a change? And by the way, you also keep getting in touch telling us that you were in the BBC Eurovision postcard for Molly Smith and Downs in 2014. Keep those coming in. Were you there? Were you in a poncho? Was it raining with the buses? We've heard from loads of you so far, so thank you very much for that. And then another thing that I have to thank you for, and these were really lovely to have a look at, because we put out on our socials, at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter this was, or are we are we saying X, the site formerly known as Twitter? I've heard a few people say that now, I'm not sure I like it. Anyway, you know what I mean. We put out on there one of the questions we ask here on the podcast, what's your first Eurovision memory? Loads of you got in touch, so I just want to go through some of them now. Alice, 2002, my sister and I were too young to stay up late for the voting, so we recorded it on VHS, remember VHS, and watched the results back the next day. Uh, Will said my very first Eurovision memory is from Malmo in 1992, so seems perfectly apt that we're heading back to Malmo this year. Uh, he said, obviously, 1992, when Linda Martin won for Ireland, I was nine. I didn't quite understand the competition, but I loved the big show. So by Mill Street the following year, I was totally invested. Uh, Laureen said, they said, uh, my family being obsessed with Lena, who won something, I had no clue what it was. I was only six. Uh, The second one I remember watching was the live performance of Euphoria. Still didn't know what Eurovision was. And then from 2014, I started watching it in full. Uh, Hugh got in touch just with a gif of Gina G, which says everything I need to know. Uh, Liam got in touch. Daz Sampson's performance and thinking, what on earth is this? Liam, weren't the only one. Uh, Neil said Israel's entry from 2000. Do you remember that? Ping Pong. Do you remember Ping Pong from 2000? If you haven't seen that, definitely go back and watch that. And then Corrie, friend of the podcast, she got in touch. She said, my mum turning up the radio volume on Sunday morning and saying, you might like this song. It's from Belgium and it won a contest called Eurovision last night. I like the song. That's how it all began for me. Corrie, thank you so much for that. Shall I do one more? One more? Ariana said, Antique, die for you. I accidentally downloaded it on a P2P programme and loved it. Though joining the fandom properly was my first national final memory which was Moldova's national final in 2012 with the Cardboard Cutout Clouds. Yes! Do you remember the Cardboard Cutout Clouds? Do you remember the Cardboard Cutout Clouds? Get in touch with anything that might be your first year of your memory, it might be have you been in a postcard like the UK's in 2014, or it might be anything you are about to hear On today's episode, we are at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and threads. We're on the email as well. We are hello at eurotrippodcast.com. And for more from us, you can also head online to read loads of our exclusive stories. That is eurotrippodcast.com.
2: You're listening to The Eurotrip with Rob Lilly and James Rowe. Like what you're hearing? Make sure to leave us a review and a rating whenever you're listening.
3: So this is the contest in me from us here at the Euro trip, and in a moment we will get to the conversation that I had a couple of weeks ago with Daniel Rosny, he's the BBC's Eurovision reporter. Some brilliant Eurovision memories on the way but I didn't manage to squeeze in there did I? We now know some news earlier this week that 16 countries will participate in the Junior Eurovision Song Contest of 2023 and who'd have thought it, where did this come from? Estonia will be making their debut At the Junior European Song Contest In Nice, in France Later on this year Some very exciting news And of course we will be covering The Junior European Song Contest Here on the podcast When the time comes Later in the year But now It is time for the conversation I just mentioned That I had with Daniel Rosny The BBC's Eurovision reporter Now, for those of you that don't know Daniel He is a journalist He works for the BBC here in the United Kingdom And he's covered Eurovision down the years He was at the contest in 2019 He worked alongside the host of the now official Eurovision podcast, Steve Holden, for many years at the BBC. So he was in Tel Aviv in 2019. He then covered the contest back here in the UK in 2021, of course, when the pandemic was ongoing. And then he was in Turin in 2022. But when the UK found out they'd be hosting the contest, Daniel got another very special job. He became the BBC's Eurovision reporter and he also became the host of Eurovision cast. Now, you might remember Eurovision cast. I'm sure many of you were listeners to Eurovision cast, of course, which was the BBC's Eurovision podcast in the lead up to Eurovision 2023. And of course, they did episodes throughout the week in Liverpool, much like we did here on the Euro trip. But Daniel has some brilliant stories from his time as the BBC's Eurovision reporter. And also from his time on Eurovision Cast, because one of his co hosts on Eurovision Cast was, of course, the winner of Eurovision 2015, Mons Zalmelov. Now, Mons is well known for many things. Winning Eurovision is one, wine is another. Both of those things will come up in the conversation, and I've already alluded to it. Daniel ends up in Mons' bed at one point. We'll hear more about that but of course we have all of the usual questions that you've come to love as well we've got daniel's first eurovision memory the moment he fell in love with the contest his favorite year his favorite song his favorite moment and of course the change that he'd like to make to the eurovision song contest and what the uk can do to improve their fortunes and get themselves back up towards the top of the leaderboard in 2024. so here's what happened when i caught up with daniel rosny the bbc's eurovision reporter for The Contest and Me. Daniel Rosny, welcome to The Contest and Me.
4: Thank you for having me.
3: Daniel, the first question we have to ask, we have to start by looking back on 2023. You, arguably, I'm going to say, were the person most heavily invested in The Contest, more than almost anyone, more than almost Lorene, I would say. (laughs) You were... You were everywhere. Of course, as uh, one of the hosts of the BBC's Eurovision cast, you were literally everywhere. How do you reflect on what must have been an incredible, hectic, stressful, but amazing, what, six, seven, eight, nine months?
4: Thank you for acknowledging that it was months, because it's really frustrating when friends and family say, "Oh, that must have been a mad week." I was like, "It was a mad, it was a mad <laughs> seven-month period." Um, yeah, it was amazing. I will never ever have a job title as good as the BBC's Eurovision reporter. Um, It's a title I no longer have because the BBC is no longer the host broadcaster, which hurts, it hurts, but um, it was amazing. And I was very fortunate that because of uh, the podcast that we had on BBC Sounds, Eurovision Cast, and because of the way that the BBC news machine wanted to embrace the contest in a way that I've never seen, actually. Um, I think that, that the first year I covered it, was in 2019, where uh, Steve Holden, who I know has been on the podcast before, he's obviously the host of the official Eurovision podcast. Um, Him and I used to work at Radio 1 Newsbeat together and we went to Israel to cover it in 2019. And we sort of had to, back then, convince different news departments that it was worth covering. Um, Whereas this year, it was like, we want everything, we want everything, we want it months in advance, we want build-ups. And, you know, for me, it really hit, hit when um, the London Eurovision party happened and I was able without question to get, you know, a report on BBC Breakfast. And it was on BBC Breakfast throughout the morning and it ran on, uh, you know, throughout the day on the on the BBC News channel. And there was radio reports and, you know, like Radio 4 and 5 Live and just places that you would never think ordinarily would do eurovision stories but that's just because it's got so big and i think it obviously helped it being in the uk the bbc being the host broadcaster and i think also just because it was positive and it makes everybody happy
3: it is very strange having these conversations about eurovision especially on this series so on the contest of me because normally we're coming at this from a position where like you said there's some cynicism and you know, everyone that comes on the series, we're all fighting the good fight, but we're normally mm. kind of, as you said, you know, in the minority. But fingers crossed that continues to change. And Eurovision Cast was, of course, a, a huge part of that. Daniel, I want to take you back to the the last episode of Eurovision Cast, which I think you recorded at what, like one twenty something in the morning after the grand final?
4: Um, God, I thought it was later, but it could have been. That whole week we were recording... Up until about two o'clock each night. Um, but it was amazing. It was so much fun. But I don't, I, I'll have a confession. I, th- I think because of how much I invested myself and my workload, I've still not actually heard the end of the last episode because I just know that I'll cry.
3: <laughs> I think that's fair enough. Well, I was just going to say there was like a lovely story that you told on that episode, which was your search, your desperate search for a bow tie to go with your tuxedo (laughs) during the grand final do you want to share with everyone kind of what position you found yourself in because I think it resulted in you texting one of your Eurovision cast co-hosts desperately (laughs) attempting to get a bow tie and then eventually ended up in a shopping center and maybe having a cry
4: yeah so um it had become a sort of I don't know a running theme on the on the podcast what would I wear to the final because I always knew that I was going to be presenting a build-up show on the BBC News channel live from the arena which was amazing so I was determined to wear a tux so I brought a tux and in the day of the final I mean we saw each other didn't we Rob like running about the press center that week and it was just mad and there was a two-hour window on the final where I wasn't on air and I didn't need to prep and I thought I can just sleep because I was averaging like three hours sleep a night for that week and I just knew that I needed some energy and I got into bed and I'd taken my contact lenses out and that bit when you're just about to fall asleep I had this realization I don't know how that I didn't have a bow tie in my tux um, and <laughs> in like the suit jacket in the tux jacket um carrier bag and I don't know why I'd realized that and I opened like the jacket and there wasn't a bow tie in it I was like, oh god I need to be like Dressed in, you know, in the arena in the sort of less than three hours, And I just bought two hours kip. And um, Mons was staying in the same hotel as me, so I texted him, which was amazing. Texting a former Eurovision winner asking if I could yeah. borrow his
3: clothes. Yeah, <laughs> so I mean, Pete, I'm sure people know this already, but this is this is Mons Amalove, winner of Eurovision 2015, <laughs> yeah. who was one of your co-hosts. Absolutely.
4: <laughs> yeah, so that was that was a funny moment where I was like, "Can I borrow a bow tie?" And he's like, "I don't, I don't have one." So then I had to put contact lenses back in, get dressed, um, walk into Liverpool city centre, which was only sort of like half a mile away from the arena. And it was packed because, you know, people were making their way to the fan village and they were making their way to the arena. And... I got into the shopping centre and I got a bow tie. And they were handing out free booze in the in the shopping centre just because it was Eurovision. And again, that was another sort of like pinch me moment that you know the country is just behind this competition. And then when there was a choir singing Eurovision songs and everybody was just so happy, I was exhausted. I'd found a bow tie. It was sun was shining. People had flags everywhere. And I just burst into tears. and <laughs> I don't know. I'm still I've still not been able to sort of work out specifically what I was crying about. I, I know it was happy tears. And I think I just was just wanted to take in the moment of this year was such a special year for Eurovision. And, you know, if the UK does win Eurovision again and it gets to host it, I don't think it will feel as special
3: Yes, welcome to the grand final of the Eurovision on Contest 2023! Daniel, there are so many questions that we have to get through, of course, on the contest to me, which I promise we'll get to in just a second, but one last question on 2023, because as we said, you were someone who was so close to the artists and the whole kind of narrative and the whole story of Eurovision 2023. So now we're talking, we know we're going to Sweden next year. A a, a moment for Lorene, because you had a couple of like encounters with Lorene, of course, on that journey, including I I think kind of before we even knew she was doing Eurovision, right?
4: Yeah, so um, last late last year, it was either October or November, um, there were rumours that she was doing Melody Festival and again, and I just asked her. <laughs> and she, she, was, she just said, darling, and wouldn't wouldn't answer. Um, but for me, it was kind of a full circle moment because I'm, I'm sure we'll get into some of the questions, but I always watch Eurovision as a kid. But Lorreen winning in 2012 sort of changed my interest in the competition. So it was amazing that she was doing it again, and that it was in that my, you know, the country I grew up in. It was in the UK, it was in Liverpool. I grew up in Manchester, so it wasn't too far away. Um, and she was just so heavily involved in the, the contest. And I remember speaking to her on the turquoise carpet at the beginning of the Liverpool week, and she was still so excited for to be involved in it. And, you know, she didn't always think she was going to win, but she said to me, there was, there was no carpet when she did it in 2012 because you know Eurovision wasn't as big then as it is now. And there's all of these side events and she was just loving every new element to the competition because even though she'd done Eurovision before, there were so many extra bits that were new to it that it was still exciting, which was lovely to see as well. I'm still not
3: convinced Laureen really knows what Eurovision is. I remember when we had her on the podcast, and she said when she won in 2012, she didn't have a TV, so she didn't know what she was entering in the first place. <laughs> I'm still not convinced she really knows what's going on. Daniel, let's let's go back. Let's start then. The first question, the first the first proper question, when we get into the meat of the uh, of these episodes here on the contest in me, is let's go back to the very very start. And your first Eurovision memory, what
4: is it? It's uh, Birmingham 1998, so the last time that the UK hosted before Liverpool. Um, I don't remember much of the contest itself. I remember being told I was able to stay up and watch it. Um, And I remember the advert leading up to it on the BBC. Um, Now, I was actually born in Ireland. So I was born uh, in the early 90s in in Dublin, and then as a kid, we moved over to England. So I was always told as a child, Ireland is amazing at Eurovision. Ireland (laughs) smashes it every year. So as a family, we've always just loved watching Eurovision because, you know, Ireland used to be really good um let's bring back those days um and even like this year you know i was lucky enough to be in the arena but in like the group chat of the family group chat you know we were messaging watching along for the semi-finals and the final um so yeah 1998 was the first one that i i remember watching with my family um and then i just always watched it every year as a kid and you know if you like in the early noughties like scooch that samson like you remember those songs and i don't know whether or not it's because they got maybe more airplay or they charted or maybe because they were on national selection shows but it felt like as well that back then on the school playground everybody knew the eurovision entry that year whereas i think if you look back over the past sort of five six seven years not not always have they been that prominent in popular culture but we're slowly starting to see that definitely with May Muller and Sam Ryder and to an extent James Newman as well I think
3: was that part of and I think this was the same for me growing up and I don't know about you I think we're fairly similar ages I think but when we were when we were growing up, and like you said on the playground as well, there was a lot of talk about the the UK selection that year. You know, who's potentially mm. going up for it? I remember when Casey Price was in making your mind up. That was like a huge moment because at that time, that's kind of what Eurovision in the UK was. It almost seemed inevitable that she'd she'd do it. I mean, she lost out that year, I think, to Javine. I think that was two thousand five.
4: I think then you know we we did have some famous people who were sort of linked to Eurovision. You know, Javine at the time was really famous. You know, she very nearly got into Girls Aloud, who are my favourite act of all time and always will be. Um, But, you know, you had Katie Price linked to it as well. Kim Marsh, you know, before she went into Carnation Street, she used to be in a band called Hearsay. She was linked to it. Um, You know, you had uh, Andy Abrahams, I think his name was, who came second on the second series of X Factor. So they were always like sort of middling famous people linked to it. And then I think in the more recent selections that we've had, they've not necessarily been household names who participated. Um, but I think that's just how the media has changed because obviously in that time we've had, I don't know, how many series of X Factor, how many series of The Voice. So it's it's harder to be a celebrity now in a household name. Um, but yeah, maybe that is why we were talking about it on the playground i I remember that song though katie price might not have been chosen but i could still sing you the song
3: I do wonder how that would have done in uh, in Keith back in 2005. There was something so bold and so brash about Eurovision in the early noughties. Do you think that was one of the reasons that kind of helped keep your interest after watching it in, in, as you said, 98? Because there was something about that, especially early, mid-2000s, that was so eye-catching and so memorable. Not always for the right reasons, but you definitely always remembered it. And those images kind of set, stay, kind of seared into your mind, I think.
4: Yeah, 100 percent, because I think as a kid, you know, I, I only spoke English, so you would naturally just enjoy the songs that were in English and the songs that weren't in English. They would catch your eye more than your ear because of how bold they were on stage, the funny characters, the costumes, that kind of thing. And I think because to an extent that still exists, there are obviously more songs now in English than there used to be. But because you still have, you know, crazy costumes, big hair, it, I think, is one of the reasons why a lot of young people still watch Eurovision of all ages. There are such few shows, I think, on television that it's for everyone. It's for grandchildren. It's for teenagers. It's for university students. It's for parents and grandparents. and You can all watch it together. And other than sort of X Factor at its heyday, Strictly Come Dancing now, I can't think of another entertainment show that is for absolutely everybody and everybody will get enjoyment out of it. Um, And it's obviously gone through different evolutions along the way. But I think it's always kept that uh, same theme in that it is for absolutely everybody.
3: If we move it forward then and kind of staying on that, that theme... What was the moment that you really fell in love? Like, what was the moment you properly were like, I'm going to invest? I'm I'm going to say I'm going to invest my life in that, which might be going a bit strong, but you know what I mean. What was the moment you first fell in love?
4: Ooh, that, that's a tricky one to answer. So the first year I knew that it was bigger outside of the UK was when Lorene won, and that's because I travelled a lot of Europe at the back end of 2012, and her song was just on everywhere. Euphoria was on everywhere. I was like, this is the Eurovision song. Why are they playing that in a bar? And then I was like, oh, okay, they like Eurovision in other countries. But I think it was probably 2016. Um, I just think that the song selection that year was so strong. And so in the build-up to that, I started really paying attention to the songs. But by that stage, I was only paying attention to the songs that had been selected. I wasn't yet invested in the national selection season. That came a couple of years later. So I think that I am sort of... In the Euro fandom, I'm a relatively newcomer. I think probably in the last five or six years to the like sort of national selection season, but yeah, 2016 for me was a turning point in in that I accessed it outside of May. <laughs> I mean, my favorite ever Eurovision song was 2016. Don't don't um, tell us which though.
3: Don't spoil it. We're getting <laughs>
4: there. I won't. I won't. No spoilers yet. Um, but then, um, but yeah, it's just got bigger and better. I think since then.
3: Yeah, 100%. No, I mean, you're not the first person that's uh, that's mentioned Eurovision 2016, that's for sure. Which, which may now come up again, because the next question that follows is your favourite Eurovision year, Daniel, which could be for any reason. You know, it might be working on the contest. I mean, if it is working on the contest, I can probably guess which one it is. It might be as a fan. But go on, you tell me.
4: Well, I think um, obviously this year will always be so special to me because I had... Probably one of the best jobs in the country during that whole period um but i I don't want to uh ruin some of the other experiences that I have. it will always be special and i I feel like it twenty twenty three for me just has its own chapter um in my sort of eurovision fandom but twenty nineteen was also really special, and I think that's because it was the first year that I got to cover it as a journalist for the BBC um went to israel which was amazing um just because it was so far away <laughs> and um again the, the when i listen on sort of playlists now to just sort of my eurovision playlist on shuffle and you know sometimes that like, you can't be in a mood for certain songs you know, like, oh i oh, i'm i'm not in a ballad mood or i'm not in a i'm not in a happy mood or i'm i'm, I'm not in a uk mood so i'll skip that i'll skip that But whenever a 2019 song comes on, I never, ever skip it. And it's because it just reminds me how lucky I have been to be able to cover it as a job. But also, like, there were certain memories of that trip. And sort of it was the first time that I got to sort of engage with the artists and the delegations and sort of understand behind the scenes, like, what goes on. So I've covered, (laughs) because obviously Eurovision isn't my... 12 month job at the BBC. So at the time, I mean, up until last year, I was uh, the politics editor at Radio One Newsbeat. So I would cover like political events, you know, like um, if you remember a few years ago, there was this massive climate change conference in Glasgow, COP26, and you'd have like on hotel lobby doors, you know, a sign saying Croatia or Slovenia or Ireland. And then I'm in. Uh, tel aviv and i'm walking around hotel lobbies and they've got switzerland malta and i'm like am i covering a un conference like what's going on <laughs> and then you realize that no there's this whole like delegation element to it which you didn't get to see on television um and i didn't really understand as a journalist at that point because i would never experienced it so yeah so for me 2019 and 2023 2023 obviously tops it for obvious reasons but twenty nineteen is, is still special. Ninety three points, that means the that-
3: what was that moment like when you found out that you would be going like you would be going to to cover the contest because you know people listen to this they'll be like oh my god that sounds like the most incredible job ever and i mean it is obviously but it's also very hard work but what was it like as a eurovision fan knowing i'm gonna get paid to go and to go and do this and also as you said you know in israel which which feels in the eurovision world quite exciting quite far away
4: yeah, so um specifically with the Israel uh, event in 2019 um so again that was Steve Holden and myself uh and it wasn't necessarily that we were just asked to cover it like we we had to like pitch and like have meetings with bosses and convince them that it was worthy of news coverage because you know lots of people listening to this won't need convincing that Eurovision is a huge event but for lots of you know commissioners at that time, especially in news, they thought, oh, it was just maybe on the Saturday night, we'll say who's won. But there was so much stuff that we could do in the run up to it. Um, and we did loads of interesting digital stuff at the time, I think, that like we did explainer videos to sort of, you know, explore how it has changed. Um, it was amazing to eventually get the sign off to go. Um it feels a bit of a blur. I think also because of the time difference. I remember that being something we hadn't considered. I think Israel is three hours ahead of the UK, so it didn't actually start until 11 p.m. local time. I think I'm right in saying it was something like that. It was really, really late. Um, and I I don't do very well in the heat. I remember having to drink a lot of water. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was that was amazing. And what? Uh, What that showed as well was that when we did loads of reports on Radio 1, and we wrote loads of articles for the website and did bits on YouTube here and there, um, that the youth element to it, you know, we get data that shows, you know, what the youth engagement is like. And it it was young people who were reading our articles. It was young people who were watching our videos. It was young people who were texting into Radio 1 after hearing our reports on Newsbeat. So I think it showed to maybe some senior people at BBC News who might have thought it wasn't great maybe because it wasn't great when they used to watch it that it that it's changed a lot now.
3: And when you are on the ground I mean just giving us a bit of an insight into what kind of a day is like because I, like, I know what a day is like and it's it's, yeah. it's hectic and it's mad and it's tiring and it's crazy but it's a lot of fun and those things do stay with you so you know, what is a what is a day in the life of, well, I suppose as it was in 2023, the BBC's Eurovision report. So maybe that's not kind of, you know, exactly how it normally is every year, covering it for the BBC. But it's it's full on. But also you are interacting with delegations who interact with you differently, I guess. And each delegation takes Eurovision seriously or less seriously, don't they, depending on on who it is?
4: Yeah, this year was definitely way more full on and i just have to thank uh tinted moisturizer for getting me through (laughs) that week because i was getting no sleep um but yeah we were um i mean the whole bbc news team was working really hard but for me as the reporter sort of i'd get up at about maybe five quarter past five each morning um sort of have a shower try to look presentable uh, and then I would uh, be on BBC Breakfast TV. They moved to the Red Sofa to Liverpool. Um, I remember one morning they had a choir uh, <laughs> singing Eurovision songs on air. And then because it was just just constant deliriousness and sort of thinking, is this happening? It was amazing. Um, and then you would sort of, yeah, be contacting different delegations, checking and see how rehearsals were going. I was very lucky that I got to see every show um, so every, what would be a jury show for the semifinals and, um, the jury final. So you could sort of see if things went wrong or if things needed to be improved. Um, then there was writing bits for the website, uh, running around, going on various BBC radio stations, um, trying to have lunch somewhere. Then we would record, um, Eurovision cast at some point. Um, one of the episodes... Of Eurovision cast during Liverpool week, we were <laughs> we'd seen the um, this was on the Monday, and we'd watched uh, the Monday night uh, show for the first semi final, and we were going to record like what what we just witnessed, and we'd had you know we we'd had a drink or two, and <laughs> Mon's was like let's just let's just go back to my hotel and we'll just record it in my bed. I was <laughs> like what. <laughs> so so, we all pile into Mons's hotel room, and we record sort of in bed with Mons, and I was <laughs> like, "This this is the strangest thing that I've ever done." I'm in bed with a former Eurovision winner, uh, drinking some of his wine because he's got his own wine brand. And well, we please record...
3: tell me, Mons brought some of his own wine. With oh, him. he brought. He, de- he, de- de-
4: he definitely brought some of his own. <laughs> Ryan, brand. there was a moment, I think this was on the Thursday, um, I don't think I'll get into trouble for saying this, but on the on the Thursday night, we'd finished recording at about quarter to two in the morning, we walked back to our hotel, we were staying in the same hotel, and we got there about two, and on the walk back, he had said, um, oh, my, I've still got a lot of adrenaline, uh, should we just have a drink in the hotel bar? And I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll have a drink in the hotel bar. I have to be up in about four hours, but it's Eurovision week, I can have one drink, it's fine. Yeah. So then we get to the bar and it's closed, they're not serving anymore. And I, in my head, I was like, sort of semi-relieved because I was like, that's an extra half an hour of sleep. And then Mon said, I've got some wine, should we, should we just have some wine in my hotel room? And I was like, my head is saying, go to sleep, but my heart is saying a former Eurovision winner is offering to have wine with you at sort of quarter past two on a Thursday. Um, Thursday evening. So I did, I had a glass of wine and then I went to bed. Um, But that was, yeah, so the the week of Liverpool, no day was the same. Um, It was really interesting, actually, seeing all of the different journalists from the different national broadcasters who were there, because my experience of covering it in 2019, I didn't go in 21. because of COVID restrictions still uh, in the Netherlands, but I was there in Turin in 22, and it it felt like the national broadcasters as well had put more, had sent more of their journalists. It wasn't. It definitely felt this year that there was a there were more national journalists than fan media there, um, which I think shows that just the interest in the competition across Europe and beyond has got bigger. Um, but yeah, it was it was there was some mad moments. I remember being live on air. Um, it was the final night, actually, so I was in a tux, and I at my my viewpoint, my camera point was inside the arena. And as I said, I was presenting sort of a build-up show on, on BBC News for, I think it was for ninety minutes that one. And um, I, one of the other presenters who was in the uh, fan zone was about to sort of introduce me, but they would cut to me too early, so I'm on screen while trying to help Marco Mangoni like duck down and Marco <laughs> Marco <laughs> Mangoni this was like it was something ridiculous like 20 minutes to air until the show started but Marco Mangoni had been doing an interview with Rai the Italian broadcaster literally right next to me and they said oh can we cut through He said oh yeah I'm not I'm not live yet and then in my earpiece I can hear Daniel Rosny now and then I've just got like five or six people like running under me and I'm like trying to help the camera person (laughs) it was all very chaotic um but that's what makes Eurovision so fun to cover because you don't get that at climate change conferences
3: no you definitely (laughs) don't the joys of live broadcasting as well is uh, is exactly what you've just given us an insight into there Daniel it might be being in bed with Mons in Liverpool (laughs) the next question is your most memorable eurovision moment and again this could be covering it it could be watching it it could be in the audience as a fan
4: it's actually and it's something that you i miss um since i started covering it in 2019 it was actually um watching it with my friends at a house party and if i wasn't doing this job uh and i wasn't getting to go to eurovision that's that's the one only thing i miss Is watching Eurovision with my friends, and it was the year where Suri had the stage invasion. And there was about twenty of us, maybe even thirty of us, in a living room. And when she picked that mic up, honestly, like we all like God, we're like, come on, come on! And there was like a five to ten minute window after her performance. Where we were, we just convinced ourselves we were going to win Eurovision. Like, why wouldn't we? Like, like Suri was the definition of resilience, and she had just performed to the best of her ability. You could see on telly the crowd in the arena get behind her. We were behind her. We were like, Europe's going to get behind us, but then we didn't win. Uh, but I loved that moment of just sheer patriotism that that we had, where we just convinced ourselves that we were going to win. And I, and I, for me, that's what Eurovision is. It's, it's the parties. It's, it's the watch parties that people have where they've got drinking game rules. uh, They dress up, they bring a different dish. Um, And that for me is like a snapshot of, because there were people at that party who just watch it that one night of the year. And then there were people at that party who, like me, follow it all year round. But for that tiny snapshot, we had convinced ourselves that we were going to win. Um, and I still think that, you know, in my head, we won that year. We didn't win. that won.
3: <laughs> there is... Um, there's always a bit of an advantage, I always think. If you're at a Eurovision party and someone who like knows Eurovision pretty well. Because as you said, with the drinking games, I remember we played a drinking game, I think this was 2014, and we played a drinking game. So I was with my friends watching it, but again, they're friends who probably just watch on Saturday. And to be honest, I've probably persuaded them to watch on Saturday because they might they might occasionally like miss it if, if I hadn't told them Eurovision was on. And we were playing a drinking game where I think you, ha- you were assigned countries at the start and you had to drink every time your country got 12 points. And I remember we gave my, the, the friend who is least likely to be able to handle his drink, shall we say, I gave that friend Austria. And we all know what happened in 2014. And my, me- <laughs> my memory of Eurovision 2014 is effectively halfway through the voting. So we've not even got to the end yet. I'm just putting that friend to bed because he just <laughs> he, 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 he couldn't make it to the end of, of Eurovision that year. So yeah, like you said, the joy of the Eurovision party.
4: I've got, I've got a similar story, which was, um, it might have even been the same house party, but, you know, similar, you know, like we dished out countries, um, but the what, what, everybody got two countries, I think. Oh, no, might, no, because it was the final. So everyone must have just got one country, but there was Norway left. So then the deal was that everybody had to drink when <laughs> Norway got points or when Norway performed. And that year, maybe, that year, Norway did quite well. And this became this sort of like terminology in our group chat, which was shots for Norway. Cause like every couple of minutes it was shots for Norway, shots for Norway. And then after, uh, after the final in 2019, um, it was like half four in the morning and um, I bumped into Kano and I was, Trying to explain this story to them, and I don't, I still don't think that they understand it. But in that group chat, I just posted a video of um, me, Tom, Alex, and Fred, and we're just going shots for Norway.
2: <laughs> Next up is Norway.
4: Okay. Norway, are you ready? Because you got. 291
0: points And now you're of course in first place Norway Congratulations, you're in the lead
3: it's only, We've only got a short amount of time left And we've still got a few questions to get through So we can be fairly quick with this one if you want You've already teased it Your favourite
4: Eurovision song Barre, Say yay, 2016, Spain it's So much fun isn't it? So much fun robbed, 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 absolutely robbed, Uh, yeah to me that is just an absolute bop and I saw her perform it live for the first time this year in Barcelona and I was on my own um, because I was covering um, the Eurovision pre-party in Barcelona and the night before she was performing and I went and I was so excited that this man went are you okay? I was like i wanted to see this live for so long but yeah, that's, that will always be, I think, it'll have a special place in my heart.
3: Tony, we, we talked about Spain, maybe not doing as well as we uh, we would have expected. Uh, talk about the UK um, in 2023. You know, you, you of course, were following my Muller's journey very, very uh, thoroughly, should we put it, for, for Eurovision 2023. The UK, 2022, same, same came so close to winning the contest, jury winner. And I think we all thought that May would, would do all right in 2023. 25th, second last. Unfortunately, what do we need to do to get the UK back on the left-hand side? And I really hoped we wouldn't be back ans- asking <laughs> this question on The Contest of Me. Because I remember the very first series of The Contest of Me, it was what can the UK do to get back on the left-hand side? And then when we did the series last year, it was what does the UK have to do to stay on the left-hand side? But unfortunately now it's what do we have to do to get back on the left-hand side again?
4: I've never been able to put my finger on why but you know if you look at the stats the country that hosts tends not to do that well the following year and I don't I don't understand why that is maybe it's just the coincidence um each year you know it's tricky to compare because obviously you Sam came second out of sort of the class of 2022 would he have come second out of the class of 2021 I don't know. So, you know, it's all about the competition that year. Um, I, you know, it's interesting, you know, we're talking in a week where uh, Tap Music, who sort of were involved in picking Sam Ryder and May Muller, say that they won't be involved uh, in 2024. I'd be interested to see um, what happens or what the selection process is. I don't know <laughs> what that is um, at this stage. I'm, I, I don't know. Um, when they will make that public. But I think, for me, what what the UK needs to do is send, which we did have with Mae Muller, you know, the, her song had charted ahead of the competition, you know, people knew who she was, but I think, I think we should try to send an act that is established. Um, I think that would be brilliant. You know, Sam Ryder had that huge TikTok following, which was a benefit because the UK can't vote for itself but he had a ton of followers from outside of the UK so for me uh, as a fan that wants the UK to do well and to hopefully win it um i think you know them being known in other parts of of europe will will really help because you know the vast majority are watching it for the first time so they've got to they've got to be hooked they've got to want to vote and you know there was all of this narrative i think with Lorreen returning this year with some people suggesting it was unfair because she'd won it before but for the vast majority of voters I, I'm, I don't know if they would remember who won it 11 years ago if they would you know she looks different the song doesn't sound exactly the same the staging was different it was in a different country um so yeah so i i i would also be here for a, a returning artist you know i'm particularly keen and Lucy Jones trying again, I would I would like to see that. Um, yeah, we need to be on the left hand side though, Rob, don't we?
3: We do need to be back on the left hand side. That would be nice. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned Lucy Jones. I I've heard that she she'd be up for it. I I, like, I don't know if you've heard the same thing, but I've, I've heard she'd be up
4: for it. She's always been a big defender of the competition, I think, and she had quite a tricky year because she did twenty seventeen, which was the first year after the uh, European Union referendum vote um, in the UK. And obviously, the UK voted to leave the European Union. Everyone thought, oh, nobody's going to vote for us. But, you know, she did; a, she got an OK result. Her song was amazing. I think she probably had one of the best vocals of the night. Um, but, yeah, I would be keen for her to come. I mean, I've been plotting, and I've said this publicly a number of times, um, I want Louisa Johnson to do it. She won X Factor, probably about six, or seven years ago now, maybe even longer. But she can sing, she can dance, and I think that she can do like a Luca Honey.
3: I'd be here for that. I would be very here for that. Yeah. Okay, you heard it here first, Louisa Johnson for Eurovision twenty twenty four starts now. <laughs> Daniel, the last question. I can't believe we've uh, we've got through them all. The last question, and this is one that I'm always fascinated to hear the answer because we've had so many different answers to this question down the years. What's the one change you'd make to the Eurovision Song Contest, if you could? So you are Martin Osterdal in this scenario. You can you can do what you want. There's no reference group. You don't have to get it voted through. You can just do what you like. What, what would you do? What change would you make?
4: So I like all the behind the scenes stuff. And, you know, when, uh, if you remember when X Factor was on TV at its peak, straight after you would put ITV2 on for the extra factor, I would have after the semi-finals and the final, like a live stream of the arena or the or the green room or backstage, to for just the the aftermath because we build up especially during the semi-finals, like we build up like who's going to qualify, who's going to qualify, who's going to qualify, and then like this year in the second semi-final, I really wanted Slovenia to qualify and Joe out with the last act to be called. And then it's just over and you've got you've got like you have to go on social media to engage in group chats and that kind of thing but i I would love it if there was an official thing that you could just watch and engage and have sort of i don't know somebody going over to the acts to to find out how they're feeling because the the emotions are so raw not only for the contestants but i think for the viewers and the fans because everything is so tense
3: daniel it's been a treat Thank you so much for being here uh, for the contest and me. And um, well, may our paths cross again at many a Eurovision event, be it a delegation bubble or a press center or wherever, and maybe it'll be in Malmo, fingers crossed.
4: Yes, uh, I've not been able to get accommodation yet in Malmo, but I did book sort of six minutes after the announcement, Copenhagen. And I'm gonna be, commu- I'm, I'm be commuting, I think. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure we'll see each other soon. There's so many events now um, outside of May, but it's been, it's been great. And I'm looking forward to the next, the next series, Rob.
3: Daniel, it's a joy. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for being on the contest and me.
0: Cheers, speak soon. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
2: if nobody was told what you were meant to do if there weren't any rules then we would be living in a totally different format a- brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices
1: from across the UK and around the world.
0: Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies.
3: And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up.
1: Contemporary (laughs) conversations around bisexuality.
0: Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused.
1: We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay.
3: It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very Personal story as we tried to paint a real picture of bisexual
2: Britain.
1: This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your
2: podcast. Like what you're hearing? Make sure to leave us a review and a rating whenever you're listening.
3: A lovely trip down memory lane with Daniel Rosny there on the contest. And me, thank you so much for sitting down or just listening intently for the last half-hour, 40 minutes or so because it was definitely worth your while. Some lovely Eurovision memories from Daniel there, including, of course, looking back on everything he did when it came to Eurovision 2023. Safe to say, Daniel... I would say, did more than most, I would say did more than almost anyone, almost more than Lorreen probably, when it comes to Eurovision in 2023, because you heard you know, the length of the days he was working and everything he worked on, and yeah, we can be very thankful for everything Daniel did for Liverpool in 2023, and some great memories there. Also, of course, how fondly he looks back on the contest in Tel Aviv in 2009, again, the contest in 2016, that keeps coming up here on the contest in me, as one that people look back on very, very fondly. And and how could we forget shots for Norway every time I see Norway perform at the Eurovision Song Contest from now on or every time I see Kano I'm just gonna think shots for Norway we'll have to get Kano back on the podcast soon absolutely and ask them about that but thank you Daniel for being so generous with your time and uh, hopefully we can catch up in a Eurovision press center very very soon thank you very much for listening everyone if you have any thoughts on anything you have just heard, please do get in touch with us at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, on threads. Send us an email as well if you want. Hello at Eurotrip We would love to hear them. So much to get in touch with there. And uh, yeah, if you enjoyed Daniel's conversation, please do let us know. We will, of course, return with another episode of The Contest in Me next week. I intend on returning next week, but it's my stag do this weekend so wish me luck I have every intention of being here on the podcast next week so fingers crossed I'll be here but rest assured there will be an episode because the very special person joining us on the contest of me next week they've already done their interview we've ticked that box it's a great chat and you can hear it next week and you can hear from her that's all I'm going to say also hopefully James will be back from his holidays as well so we'll find out what he's been up to But in the meantime, don't forget to leave us a review, rate us five star as well, and everything else that James usually says. Thank you for being here; really appreciate it. And I'll hopefully see you next week. But we'll definitely be in your podcast feeds then. So we'll see you soon. Bye bye.
1: Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.